This is Pakinggan Pilipinas. I'm Elise Punsalan, your fiction DJ. Have you ever met or seen a celebrity? I would bet that at least once in your life you already have. But I guess the average person haven't really gotten close to famous people. Enough for them to know our names. Enough to have what I call a Notting Hill experience. Well, if you were the girl in this month's episode, I don't think you'd want to meet a celebrity ever again. Sit back, relax, and let Nikki Alfar tell you a story. The Bridge by Yvette Tan The madame has the most beautiful hands. They are small and smooth and white, with long slender fingers and perfect moon-shaped nails. I imagine them glowing in the dark, as luminescent as pearls, as bright as the moon. They are the hands of someone who was born into a life of leisure, one who has never known hard work. It is hard to imagine that the madame was ever poor to look at her. Her hair done in an elegant bouffant, jewels dripping from her ears and neck and wrists, always beautiful, impeccably clad in our national dress. A symbol of our country, patron to the arts, the madame that would save us from our poverty, from our ignorance. This is the image she presents to the world. It had been a while since she last visited, but with the construction of the bridge, one of her husband's pet projects, she had been coming by more and more, drawn by our town's beauty, or perhaps by her past here, but not wanting to admit it to others, or to herself. When the madame first came to town, it was like a fiesta. Banners were strung out all over, and people lined the streets, cheering and waving Philippine flags, all of them, us, trying to catch a glimpse of the madame. I was there with Nanay and Ate, the three of us giddy with excitement, Ate almost faint with it. Nanay trying to look composed, though she was talking louder than usual and making big gestures with her hands, a sure sign that she was thrilled. The sun beat down on us, burned our skin and made our eyes sting, but we didn't care. There was a celebrity in town, one more famous and more beautiful than any actress. And what made it even more special was the fact that she grew up in this province, too. When the black Mercedes-Benz passed us, I squinted, making my eyes as small as I could, trying to make out the barest of outlines behind the darkened windows. When it was right in front of me, the window's black, oily surface rolled down to reveal the face of the madame. I held my breath. She was more beautiful in person than on TV or on the posters. She smiled at us, smiled at me. How old is your daughter? She asked Nanay. Nora is fourteen, she said, indicating Ate. No, I meant your other daughter. Nanay looked at me. Dab six, she was named after you. The madame smiled. You are very pretty, she told Ate, then turned to me. You are very unique. I saw a shadow behind her shift, whisper something in her ear. She nodded, then the windows went up and the car was on its way again. She said I was pretty. We were at home, where Ate was recounting the day's events. Tatay smiled. Everyone knew that Ate was pretty. You didn't need the first lady to tell you that. She had long, dark hair, wide, expressive eyes, and a full mouth. She was slim and dainty and soft-spoken. Her only big flaw, at least to me, being her vanity. Ate had grand plans of winning all the beauty contests in the area and moving to Manila to become a movie star. Tatay laughed. And what did she say about our little Bunso? She said I was unique, I said. Nanay looked at Tatay, who shrugged and then smiled. Yes, he said. You are very unique. 
I didn't see it, but I knew that Ate was pouting. There was a knock on the door. Nana got up to open it and came back with Aling Gloria trailing after her. Aling Gloria owned the vegetable stall in the market where Nana was a suki. Looking at her, you couldn't tell that she was the barangay captain's wife. There she is, Aling Gloria exclaimed when she saw Ate. Nana was smiling. This is a great honor, she said. What's happening? Tatai asked. It's the madame, I said. The women looked at me, then back at Tatai. The madame plans to stay a while, Aling Gloria began, and she has personally asked if Nora would like to work for her over the summer. Ate squealed. I knew you would, Aling Gloria said. I hear she plays handsomely. Maybe she wants to introduce me to all her movie star friends from Manila, Ate said. Nana smiled. I knew what she was thinking. We could use the money. She also needs a lavandera, and I recommended you, Aling Gloria told Nana. You can start tomorrow. Thank you, Aling Gloria, Tatai said. Nana hugged Ate. It's so wonderful that she's here, she said. It's the building of the bridge that brought her back. The next day, Nana brought Ate and me with her to the madame's house. It was the biggest house in the area, taking up more than a block and completely hidden behind a high wall. We didn't have time to look around as we were directed to the back of the house. Nanai, with me tagging along, was sent to the laundry area, while Ate went to the kitchen. Nobody paid any attention to me. I was free to go wherever I pleased, just as long as I didn't get in anyone's way and never ventured beyond the first floor. Sometimes I would find myself in the kitchen, amidst the bustle of girls around Ate's age or older, all of them under the watchful eye of Aling Koring, who they say was the best cook in all of the province. Don't touch anything, Ate hissed when she saw me wander by one day. I see we have a little helper, Aling Koring said, smiling when she saw me. The madame is waiting for her merienda. You can take it to her on the balcony. My heart beating excitedly, I accepted the tray. I was going to bring the madame her merienda on the second floor. The madame was there, staring out into the town. She looked beautiful against the glow of the afternoon sun. Her eyes were half-closed, as if she was staring at the world through a curtain of lashes. There was a half-smile on her lips. Her hands were set daintily on her lap, fingers clutching at a lace handkerchief. It was the first time I noticed them. I set down the tray and put her merienda of a glass of orange juice and a strange, flaky bread shaped like a carabao's horn on the table, trying to make as little noise as I could. Thank you, she said as I left, not taking her eyes away from the view. It was the most content I would ever see her. Even though it was only about three o'clock, the inside of the house was gloomy and dark, with shadows in every corner. Anyone with a little bit of imagination could easily imagine them moving, shimmering at the corners. I'd heard stories from some of the helpers about seeing strange, faceless shapes moving about on the second floor, but I paid them no mind. There were no such things here, else I would know. This time, though, I couldn't help but shiver. There was nothing to be afraid of, yet I could feel the hair on my nape standing up. Through the corner of my eye, I could see one of the shadows detach itself from the rest and slide up to me. It was a boy, a bit older than Ate. He was no spirit, but real flesh and blood. His hair was cut close to the scalp. He was pudgy, with a round baby face that looked funny and trusting. He didn't look all that different from the other kids in town, and yet there was something unusual about him, something that I couldn't pinpoint at first glance. What's your name? he asked. Dab, I said. He shrugged, not offering his. We're alike, he said, before running off into the gloom. What's the name of the madame's son? I asked Aling Koring when I returned to the kitchen. Oh, he isn't her son, she answered. They say he's unique, like you. 
I saw him again the next day. I was carrying a bundle of dirty clothes to Nanai when he called me. Come here, he said, ducking into a corner. What is it? I asked. My Nanai needs these clothes fast. You know about the bridge, don't you? I shrugged. Everyone knows about the bridge. It'll be the longest one in the world. Not the world, he said. But the longest one in the country, yes. Is that all you know about it? Anyone will be able to drive to Samar, I said, not knowing what he was getting at. No, 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 he said impatiently. I thought you knew. I thought you were like me. I don't understand, I said. You're just a child, he answered. You don't know anything. He wasn't wrong. At that point, I had no idea what we were talking about anymore. I have to go, I said. Nana will be looking for the clothes. I ran out, holding the basket as close to me as was possible. He didn't follow, and for that I was glad. It's magnificent here. I could hear the madame's voice as I approached the balcony. You simply must come over, she was saying. I could throw a party and have the creme de la creme of society flown over. It will be magnificent. I could see her on the balcony, sitting prettily on one of the garden chairs, talking on a little white telephone with a red handpiece and a clown's face in the middle where the number should be. There was no cord to be seen. It wasn't connected to anything. My first thought was, has the madame gone mad? I've brought him with me, the madame continued. He's such a dear to be around, though the locals are wary of him. She paused, then continued, laughing. But, oh, the money I save on phone bills! I laid out her food, my eyes on her hands, which cradled the phone as if it was a baby. If I could wish for anything in the world, it would be to have hands like hers, skin like hers. I found myself wondering what she would look like without her bouffant and her butterfly sleeve dresses, without her armor. I have to go now, the madame was saying. Talk to you soon. She turned to me. Iha, she said. Do you know what this is? It's a telephone, madame, I said. It's a toy telephone, the madame said. But I can use it as if it were a real one. It's one of Ronnie's powers. She put the phone on the table and took my hand. I shivered as her hands closed over my own, reveling as their smoothness closed over my small rough one. I can tell you're like him. What can you do? I looked at her. She was staring intently at me, her lovely dark eyes trying to see what was behind mine. Even though all the adults treated me as if I was an older child, the madame was the first one to talk to me as if I was an adult. Sometimes, I said, I hear and see things others don't. I dream things, know things that I shouldn't know. Sometimes I know things even before they happen. This wasn't a boast. To boast would be to add that sometimes, Mang Ambo, the local albulario, came to me when he had a patient whose sickness was too stubborn to cure, or when he couldn't reason with the entities that were causing trouble to some of the folks that sought his help. How do you know these things? she asked. I shrugged. Sometimes they tell me. Sometimes I just know. They? Atatina and Kuya Chris, I said. They were supposed to be my brother and sister, except Atatina decided to leave early, and when Kuya Chris came along, he decided to join her. They asked me to come along, but I said no, because I knew that Nanai would be sad. I see, she said absently, as if she already knew the answers, but wanted to hear them from me. I remembered snatches of a conversation my parents had, something about the madame and her husband knowing everything about everyone in the country. So now you can read minds, predict the future. I looked down at my feet, dark from being under the sun and dirty from being in the dust all day. 
I'm dirtying the madame's floor, I thought. The madame squeezed my hand. I looked up at her again. She was smiling. What am I thinking of right now? She asked. The bridge, I answered. I felt a jolt, a current that ran through her, up her arms, to her hands and into mine, all crackly blue and green. And then it hit me, what the boy was saying, what he had been trying to tell me. I pulled my hand away from hers and ran back down to the kitchen, forgetting to take the tray with me. I refused to go back to her house. No matter how much Nana would plead, not even when Aling Gloria came by to tell us that the madame herself had asked for my company. I cried, even though Nana spanked me for being disobedient, and would never be found when it was time for Nana and Ate to go to work. In the end, my parents let me stay home. On nights that I couldn't sleep, I would stare out the window at the street below. Most of the time I would lie awake, listening to my parents talk in the sala below, or in their room beside ours. Minor accident today, I heard that I say. Some blocks fell into the San Juanico. Did they make a fuss about it? Nanai asked. Lucia wanted to sacrifice a chicken, you know, to follow old rules. But the foreman would have none of it. Lucia was always strange. I thought they were going to take it out of our salary. Good thing the foreman told us to forget about it. Most of the time, the murmur of my parents' voices was enough to lull me to sleep. There were times, however, when I couldn't sleep, when even my parents would drift off before I did. Nights like those, I would stare out the window at the street below. I knelt on my bed, rested my elbows on the sill. The town lay still beneath me, the usual chirp of crickets and the sounds of bats and nightbirds conspicuously absent. I felt her before I saw her, felt the air grow cold around me, felt the shadows move in tight. I squinted, craned my neck to the right. It was then I saw her, a slim white figure wringing her hands as she walked down the street. There was no question about who she was. Her signature bouffant and butterfly sleeves were clearly outlined by a soft glow. The air around her seemed to shimmer, as if she was giving off heat. A light blue cord grew out of her forehead and trailed after her, shining and waving in its own breeze. I saw it extend over the rooftops, disappear into the darkness. It wasn't a ghost that I was seeing, but a spiritual reflection of a live person. I've seen a few of them, all with glowing blue cords growing from their foreheads, the lifeline that links them to their physical bodies. I watched her wring her hands, beautiful fingers being pulled and squeezed, watched the fierce defiance on her face. My sons and daughters, I heard her say in my head, I have made my choice. I will not apologize for it. I didn't know what she was talking about. I ducked when she walked past. She didn't seem to see me, but continued down the road, glowing cord trailing after her. My children, I heard her say. My children. I covered myself with my blanket, hid my head under my pillow, and waited, for what seemed like forever, for morning to come. Two days later, Mang Ambo came knocking on our door. It was a Sunday, and we were just getting ready to hear Mass. Tatai opened the door, let Mang Ambo in. The old man was accompanied by three big men in Barang Tagalogs. All of them wore dark glasses and had stern looks on their faces. Ate hid behind Nanay, pulling me with her. Good evening, sirs, Tatay said, as he cast Mangambo a quizzical glance. The albulario returned Tatay's gaze helplessly. I can't do it, he said simply, his eyes betraying horror, revulsion and pleading. It has always been this way, he said. Those who won't talk to me will always talk to your daughter. It is for the madame. I won't allow it, Tatay said. Dab is scared of the place. Do you know what happens to those who disobey the madame? One of the men asked. 
He was big, a head taller than Tatay and twice his width, his barong barely covering the muscles that bulged underneath. His hands were huge, each one as big as my head. I knew he didn't care who he hurt. I knew he wouldn't care if he hurt Tatay. I tugged free of my sister's arm, and before she could stop me, I was running towards the men. Tatay caught me, held me close. I'll go, I said. Bunso, Tatay began. I'll go if you don't hurt him, I repeated. The men shrugged. It made no difference to them. One of them picked me up. I was surprised by his gentleness. Pushing Mangambo, who was beginning to blubber before us, the men ushered us into a black bend sparked outside the house and took us to the madame. The men left me with a stern-looking mayordoma with a Manilenya accent before driving off again, Mangambo still with them. I had never seen her before. She told me tersely not to make any noise as she led me up the stairs to the second floor. Something dislodged itself from the shadows, moved accidentally into the light, jerked back. But not before I had caught a glimpse of Ronnie, his face filled with horror and agony, his skin a mottled red as if it had been scalded. In that split second his eyes had burned into mine, fierce and angry and helpless, and for once in my life I could not read what was behind that gaze. The mayordoma led me into the madame's room, opening the door with a key and stepping inside behind me. The room was dark, the only source of light coming from a dim lamp at the side of a heavily canopied four-poster bed. The air condition was turned on, but still the room felt stifling, as if it was covered in cotton. Overpowering everything was a thick, cloying smell, organic, like that of moss in stagnant water, but mixed with the death stench of decay and disease. Cora, the madame's voice asked, weak but clear. I've brought the child, madame, my companion said. There was something else in the room, a presence I had never come across. It slithered against the walls, moved like smoke in and out of the air conditioning unit, sticking to the wet spots, silent, watchful, ever moving. Come here, the madame said. Cora gave me a gentle push, and I made my way towards the bed. I heard the door open behind me, Cora stepping out. Heard the lock click shut. Sit down, the madame bade me. I sat down at the foot of the bed. On the floor beside where the lamp stood was a big basin of murky water. The presence I felt seemed to emanate from it, flow back and forth around the room, returning to draw sustenance from the mysterious liquid before rushing about again. I had an impression of eyes and scales and teeth. I looked away. The madame spoke. I'm so glad you decided to come. I was sad when you refused to see me before. You would have hurt my family, I said quietly. There was a low laugh. I would never do such a thing, she said though it was not hard to detect the lie in her voice. I need your help. I was puzzled but did not speak, my anger stronger than my curiosity. Sometimes, when something is done for the good of the country, other things have to be sacrificed, the madame began. Surely you have heard about the accident at the bridge. I understand your father was one of the workers who were nearby when it happened. I still did not say anything. She continued. It was an accident and to us no one was hurt. The presence rode the air, slithered past me, whispered in my ear. I could feel my heart beating fast in my chest. I did not know what was in the room with me. Come closer, the madame said. Come to the light. Frightened, I drew near the sound of her voice, near the light. The curtains parted. I could not believe what I saw. The madame sat on her bed, clad only in a silk sheath. She had thrown off her blanket, laying herself bare before me. She was beautiful, even though she wore no makeup. She looked at me, her face contorted into a mask of fear and hate, 
daring me to stare and at the same time daring me to look away. I forced myself to keep my gaze on her. Her limbs were covered in green-brown scales. But instead of being smooth and regular like a fish's, these were misshapen and diseased, with bare patches where gnarled barnacle-like tumors grew. Her hands, her beautiful hands, were not spared. A thin, mottled membrane had grown between her fingers, which had become twisted, ending in nails that were now talons. Her legs had fused together and were covered by the same grotesque, cancerous scales. Eight little legs with clawed feet grew out of them, dangling uselessly. Where her feet should have been grew what looked like a tattered fishtail, the color of dried blood. Talk to it, she hissed. Ask it why it's punishing me. Make it stop. Her eyes darted toward the basin, which I now knew held water from the San Juanico. What are you? I asked. The water rippled, bubbled, churned. From it came a voice, hoarse, waterlogged, speaking in an accent so thick it took a moment for me to understand it. I am water. I am Darabusao, it said. Why are you doing this? Blood for blood, it replied. Hers for my child's. I didn't kill anyone, the madame said. You and your mate have poisoned the land. You have cursed it, and now you have killed my child. The madame made a keening noise. She began to cry, her sobs turning into wails of anguish. I cannot die, she railed. I cannot grow ugly. I will have you killed. Tarabusao laughed, but there was no mirth in it. You cannot kill me, it said simply. You would die first. How dare you threaten me! I will drain the strait. I will hunt you down. You can join your child in hell. I was here before you, Tarabusao said. And I will still be here after you have gone. Now I cannot say the same for my child. You cannot win, I said to the madame, somewhat hatefully, I admit, for I still had not forgiven her for threatening my family. Ask it what I can do to reverse this, she said. Tarabusao answered before I could repeat the question. I will have the child, it said. I will have your namesake. It took a moment for me to realize what that statement meant. When it sank in, it seemed as if I could not breathe. The madame was silent. I could see her looking at me, studying me. No! I screamed. At the same time, the madame said, yes. I refuse, I told Tarabusao. You cannot make me. That I cannot, Tarabusao conceded. Someone like you, I can only take if you are willing. She's a child, the madame screamed. It should be easy to take a child. Tarabusao made a hissing noise, a chant spoken in its language. The madame screamed, writhed in pain. Stop! She choked. My husband will have you killed. Tarabusao laughed, releasing its hold on the madame. The madame lay on her bed, her breathing shallow. Dab, she said levelly. The word startled me. It was the first time she used my name. If I am not cured, I will take your family and kill them, slowly, for you to see. You I will keep alive, unharmed, so that you can live with the guilt of your family's demise. That's not fair, I screamed. I wanted to rush at her, to choke her, to stop her from hurting my family, to stop her from hurting anyone ever again, but I couldn't. Her putrid state held me back. Why? I asked Tarabusao. Blood for blood, it said. You are more like us than you know. I would be more of a mother and father to you than your own. I remembered what Atitina and Kuya Chris had whispered to me at my birth, what numerous spirits and elementals had enticed me to do. 
I loved my family. I would be nothing with them dead. But without me they might have a chance at a better life. Promise, I said. Promise that if Taraboussel lifts the curse you will leave my family alone. You will give them a good life. Make sure that they never go hungry, that they always have a sturdy roof over their heads, that Ati finishes school. I was scared. I didn't know where my words had come from or why I was speaking them. I had never thought about such things before. The madame was silent. Promise, I shouted, or I shall come and destroy you myself. Yes, the madame said softly, confidence gone from her voice. I promise. I took a deep breath. Tears were streaming down my cheeks. Do not be afraid, Tarabusal said. You will not be unloved. The water in the basin began to still, its violence shifting into the air above it. I could feel Tarabusal's presence converging in that little whirlpool of air. I could see it clearly now. Heavy-lidded eyes that covered big black pupils, long snout hiding sharp yellow teeth. Unlike the cursed ones it had bestowed on the madame, Tarabusal's scales were magnificent. A metallic blue-green that caught light and shimmered like the water. It had eight legs, all ending in sharp claws. Its strong tail glistened, forever wet with the colors of the rainbow. I had never seen anything so beautiful. I will go with you, I said to it. Already I was beginning to forget why I had refused its invitation the first time. Come close, my child, Tarabusau said. I jumped off the bed, moved towards the basin. You will return this water to the San Juanico, Tarobusel told the madame. To do otherwise would be to invite a wrath greater than what I have already shown you. The madame nodded. I knew she would keep her promise. I stood in front of the bowl of water, reached out my arm, pushed it into the middle of the swirling maelstrom of air. I could feel myself unraveling, the tiniest parts of myself separating and reforming into something more fluid, something that could not be seen by normal human eyes. I saw now why my dead Ate and Kuya had asked me to join them, why I could see things most people could not. I could see why I never belonged in this world, no matter how hard Nanai and Tatai tried to shield me from that fact. I could feel myself growing insubstantial to the human world. But I was not sad. As the last of me disappeared into Tarabusau's embrace, I mustered what was left of my human voice and said to the madame, in a voice still unlike my old one, grown gruff and strong like Tarabusau's, you will not win. With that last curse, I joined the Rabusel, and we swam patiently, waiting in a space as small as the basin that held some of the San Juanico, but bigger than the world around us, waiting for someone to take us back home. You've just listened to The Bridge by Yvette Tan, narrated by the talented Nikki Alfar. This story first saw print in Story Philippines, and was later anthologized in A Time for Dragons. It also appeared in Yvette's own short story collection called Waking the Dead. The Bridge also won a prize in the Second Philippine Graphic Fiction Awards and has been abridged for this podcast. Yvette's inspiration for The Bridge was an urban legend she heard in the 80s about children being sacrificed at the San Juanico Bridge. For whatever reason, we don't know. Would you happen to know? If you do, why don't you tweet us or write on our wall? Wait, did I tell you? Pakinggan Pilipinas has gone social. Yep, we are on Facebook. Just search Pakinggan Pilipinas and Twitter 
as Pakinggan Pinas. Like or follow us and you'll get updates and behind-the-scenes info on all our podcasts. I hope you enjoyed this month's episode. Ah, madam, would you like to say something? It's magnificent here. I could throw a party and have the creme de la creme of society flown over. I thank you, Paul. I have to go now. Ah, okay. See you again next month. This is Elise Punsalan for Pakinggan Pilipinas. Ating kwento, pakinggan mo. Talk to you soon.